I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we will address a big constitutional question, is the Constitution colorblind? The idea of the colorblind Constitution comes most famously from Justice John Marshall Harlan's lone dissent in the Plessy versus Ferguson case from 1896, in which the court upheld separate but equal racial segregations in public accommodations. Justice Harlan said, our constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. In respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. The broader issue of race in the Constitution, of course, extends all the way back to our nation's founding when delegates to the Constitutional Convention in 1787 compromised on the issue of slavery. The current amendments that we will be focusing on are those passed after the Civil War in the Reconstruction Era, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, whose 150th anniversaries we at the Constitution Center will be commemorating over the next five years. The 13th Amendment turns 150 on December 6th and on December 7th at the National Archives, we are going to have a great bipartisan commemoration uh, with our friends at the Constitutional Accountability Center. And today we have two of the leading experts in America to address the question of whether the Constitution is colorblind. Joining me here in studio is Theodore Shaw. He is the Julius L. Chambers Distinguished Professor of Law and, Dis and Director of the Center for Civil Rights at the University of North Carolina School of Law at Chapel Hill. And he has contributed a wonderful essay for the, about the Equal Protection Clause for our interactive Constitution. And joining us by phone is Michael Rossman. He is general counsel at the Center for Individual Rights in Washington, D.C. And uh, uh, CIR has often appeared on our podcasts and programs, and we're thrilled to have him as well. Ted, Michael, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. Well, let's begin with a clip from President Barack Obama's famous race speech from the 2008 presidential campaign. It was delivered right here at the National Constitution Center in our beautiful Kirby Auditorium. President Obama began the speech by talking about the Constitution and what he called its original sin. 221 years ago, in a hall that still stands across the street, a group of men gathered and with these simple words launched America's improbable experiment in democracy. Farmers and scholars, statesmen and patriots who had traveled across the ocean to escape tyranny and persecution, finally made real their declaration of independence at a Philadelphia convention that lasted through the spring of 1787. The document they produced was eventually signed, but ultimately unfinished. It was stained by this nation's original sin of slavery, a question that divided the colonies and brought the convention to a stalemate until the founders chose to allow the slave trade to continue for at least 20 more years and to leave any final resolution to future generations. Of course, the answer to the slavery question was already embedded within our Constitution, a Constitution that had at its very core the ideal of equal citizenship under the law, a Constitution that promised its people liberty and justice 
and a union that could be and should be perfected over time. And yet words on a parchment would not be enough to deliver slaves from bondage or provide men and women of every color and creed their full rights and obligations as citizens of the United States. That what would be needed were Americans in successive generations who were willing to do their part through protests and struggles on the streets and in the courts through a civil war and civil disobedience and always at great risk to narrow that gap between the promise of our ideals and the reality of their time. Great. Well, Ted, you've heard President Obama's stirring words. He referred to the original sin of slavery in the original Constitution. And indeed, there are several provisions of the original Constitution that reflected that compromise on slavery that President Obama talked about. Maybe tell us about that original sin and, and the constitutional provisions in the original Constitution that did seem to recognize the stain of slavery. Well, there were uh, uh, some clauses that were explicitly about slavery, even though slavery itself was never mentioned. The word doesn't appear in the Constitution. Uh, and then there were other clauses uh, for which uh, slavery had an uh, impact or an effect. Uh, perhaps the, the most uh, infamous clauses were the three-fifth clause uh, with respect to apportionment. Uh, it provided that uh, for apportionment purposes, uh, after uh, other citizens, read white citizens, uh, and Indians not taxed, um, three-fifths of all other persons uh, would be uh, counted for purposes of apportionment. Uh, many people have read that or understood that to mean that black people were three-fifths of human beings. The Constitution didn't say that. It's not what uh, it stood for. Uh, rather, it stood for only the principle that for apportionment purposes, uh, those who were not uh, described within Article One, Section 9 were, um, or rather Article One, Section 2, were uh, to be counted as three-fifths of individuals. What this did was uh, give um, an enormous amount of power, political power, to the slave states. Uh, and for quite some time, uh, the early presidents of the United States, with one or two exceptions, uh, John Adams, for example, uh, were uh, from the South uh, because they had more power. Uh, other provisions. Uh, were about slavery, uh, obviously the Fugitive Slave Clause. Uh, there were uh, provisions that uh, went to uh, the, uh, uh, the fact that Congress would provide for uh, the suppression of rebellions. Now, uh, not all rebellions were uh, slave rebellions, but those were the rebellions that uh, were most commonly feared. Uh, and uh, clearly the framers had that in their minds. Uh, and uh, there were uh, provisions that required, there was a provision that required uh, citizens um, or individuals, rather, uh, who, um, uh, who came into contact with people who were 
fleeing slavery to turn them over uh, and to send them back to their, quote, rightful owners. Uh, so these are some of the most infamous clauses. There were also clauses that uh, were indirectly uh, impacted by slavery. Uh, I forgot to mention, of course, there was a clause, Article 1, Section 9, that said the migration or importation of such persons as the state shall deem proper to admit. That's kind of tortured, euphemistic language, uh, again, uh, avoiding using the term slavery. Um, that migration or importation should not be um, uh, banned uh, in effect until or before 1808. Uh, but the other, the other clauses uh, that were impacted by slavery included uh, the Electoral College, uh, a, a body that most Americans to this day still don't understand. Uh, but because of the three-fifths clause, the Electoral College uh, and apportionment uh, was impacted uh, and uh, uh, provisions that had to do with taxation and um, other matters were similarly impacted. So the Constitution, uh, it's been debated whether the Constitution explicitly condoned slavery. At best, at best, uh, it certainly didn't ban it, um, and it tolerated it, and it protected it uh, in its uh, early form. Uh, but some people have read into it uh, the notion that it sanctioned slavery, at least through and uh, until 1808. Um, so it's, it's uh, you know, it's a stained um, uh, beginning. I have to say, sitting here at the Constitution Center, a place that I love, uh, I've been to uh, Independence Hall years ago, and like any American who was taught uh, as a child about the founding fathers, um, I was in awe of being in that place that meant so much where, uh, you know, our collective uh, so-called founding fathers um, did what they did. Uh, but I could not help but be conscious of the fact that were I there uh, 200 and some odd years earlier, uh, I would only be there uh, as a servant. Um, uh, I certainly wouldn't be there participating in debate. Uh, and so, um, like most uh, uh, human endeavors, um, the Constitution was imperfect. Uh, and it took a, uh, a, what was called, what has been called, a new birth of freedom uh, after the Civil War before we move further toward a more perfect union. Thank you so much, Ted, for that uh, moving account of the initial clauses of the Constitution that mentioned slavery. You gave us uh, two from Article One, Section 2, the Fugitive Slave Clause and the Three-Fifths Clause, and Article One, Section 9 on the importation of slaves. And you said people disagree about whether uh, the original Constitution uh, tolerated or condoned slavery. Michael, do you, what do, you th do you think the original Constitution tolerated or condoned it? Do you have any quarrel with Ted's account? And what are your thoughts about the original Constitution and its treatment of slavery and colorblindness? Well, I don't disagree, actually. I mean, I think uh, I would say it did tolerate and condone slavery. I mean, I think the, the clauses that uh, Ted just enumerated 
were clearly for the purpose of condoning slavery and allowing its continuation, and and for the purpose really of deferring um, the whole issue of whether slavery should be prohibited or regulated to future generations, as he said. So I I, I don't think there there's a I don't think there's a strong argument that it didn't condone it. Let's put it that way. Uh, Great. Well, um, not great, but a good, a good comment, nevertheless. Let's now it's great that we agree. It's great, it's great that you agree. Yes, absolutely. Well, speaking of agreement, we're now turning to the most contested part of our discussion, which is the original understanding of the Civil War amendments to the Constitution. As Ted mentioned, it took a, a Civil War, the bloodiest in American history, to guarantee what Lincoln called a new birth of freedom and the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Uh, we, on our interactive constitution, uh, you can read uh, the text of the amendments and also explainers uh, from uh, great scholars uh, disagreeing about its meaning. Um, Ted, when we talk about the Equal Protection Clause, uh, as well as the Privileges or Immunities Clauses of the original 14th Amendment, um, what was it originally intended to uh, achieve? Well, it's... uh it's appropriate that you mention privileges and immunities clause because uh, in the early years of the 14th Amendment, uh, the privileges and immunities clause did more work, or was perceived to do more work than the equal protection clause. Not that the equal protection clause wasn't invoked, but the privileges and immunities clause, which has fallen into dismuse, disuse for the most part, uh, was thought of as uh, having more significance uh, than we think of uh, these days. Uh, the Privileges and Immunities Clause uh, was about, uh, as we were told in the first case that interpreted the uh, 14th Amendment, uh, which was the slaughterhouse cases, uh, was about uh, whether there were some rights that were guaranteed by uh, the federal government uh, and uh, they were protected by the Privileges and Immunities Clause um, as opposed to rights guaranteed by the state uh, and uh, their uh, protection under the Privileges and Immunities Clause. Uh, so uh, these two clauses uh, both included, along with the Due Process Clause, we think about those clauses as being at the heart of uh, the 14th Amendment, uh, did a lot of early work, but the Equal Protection Clause didn't come to do the work that we understand it to have done until quite a bit later. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's a clause that uh, uh, we rely upon and we invoke uh, whenever we think about racial discrimination by uh, the government. It was quickly interpreted to only apply to state action. I mean, there was some contest about that early on, but the court resolved that by the 1880s for the most part. And we apply the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause uh, to state action, not to actions by private actors. Um, so uh, it's ironic that the first case involving the, the application of the 14th Amendment had nothing to do with race on its face, although there was a discourse within uh, the opinions uh, in the slaughterhouse cases about the original intent of the 14th Amendment with one of the justices saying he doubted that 
the Equal Protection Clause would ever be used for, or the amendment for that matter, for any other purpose other than its original intent, which was to uh, bring the former slaves uh, into the fullness of protection against racial discrimination. Uh, the Slaughterhouse case was a case challenging uh, a monopoly, as you know, uh, that Louisiana, the Louisiana legislature granted to uh, uh, some uh, uh, some slaughter houses, uh, a particular slaughterhouse that they set up and gave a monopoly to. So um, uh, that was the slaughterhouse case. Uh, didn't involve the issue of race directly, uh, but very quickly the court got into a series of cases involving the 14th Amendment and its application uh, to race, uh, the civil rights cases most notably, uh, along with uh, a series of other cases. Uh, wonderful. Well, Michael, let's really f hone in on that, the original understanding of that text. Ted flagged both the Privileges and Immunities and Equal Protection Clause. I'll, I'll just read them. No state shall make or enforce any law which will abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Those are the two clauses. Uh, what were those originally intended to achieve? Well, uh, just I think you, when you read it, you read it correctly. So to be clear, the Privileges and Immunities Clause is back in Article 4, the Privileges or Immunities Clause that is part of uh, Amendment 14 is, is slightly different. And um, I think um, I think there's a, um, a lot of, dis you know, disputed scholarship as to what, particularly with the Privileges or Immunities Clause, um, about what what precisely they mean and what they were intended to do. Um, there is a good deal, I think, of um, evidence that the Privileges or Immunities Clause was intended to complement the Equal Protection Clause. The Equal Protection Clause uh, doesn't say shall, there shall be equal laws. It says there shall be equal protection of the laws. That is to say, the laws would be enforced to protect the people uh, the same regardless, and obviously this was the underlying um, purpose of the, of the amendment, regardless of whether the individual uh, was white or black or any other color. Uh, race was to be um, irrelevant for purposes of protecting them. The privileges, excuse me, the privileges or immunities clause, um, I think, was designed in a similar fashion to expand the notions of protection so that um, if there were a privileges or immunities of uh, associated in a given state that they would not pick and choose, most obviously there was concern about that picking and choosing would be done by race, um, that the state couldn't pick and choose who would obtain the privileges or immunities. So if it was a privilege or immunity of the state, it had to be applied to, it had to, be applied to everyone. Excellent. Okay, now we're honing in on things. So, Ted, uh, Michael says that if something is a privilege or immunity, it has to be given to everyone, white and black, on equal terms. Let's talk about Justice Harlan's dissent in Plessy and Ferguson. And let's read the whole quote because it's kind of surprising and in some places rather jarring. Here it goes. The white race deems itself to be the dominant race in this country. And so it is in prestige, in achievements, in education, in wealth, and in power. So, I doubt not, it will continue to be for all time, if it remains true to its great heritage, 
and holds fast to the principles of constitutional liberty. But in view of the Constitution, in the eye of the law, there is in this country no superior, dominant, ruling class of citizens. There is no caste here. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. In respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. The law regards man as man and takes no account of his surroundings or his color when his civil rights, as guaranteed by the supreme law of the land, are involved. It is therefore to be regretted that this high tribunal, the final expositor of the final law of the land, has reached the conclusion that it is competent for a state to regulate the enjoyment by citizens of their civil rights solely upon the basis of race. It starts with this sort of recognition of apparently white social superiority and then says in respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal. Is, is Harlan simply saying that you have to be colorblind about civil rights and or privileges and immunities, but not across the whole range of state action? Or is he saying uh, something else? Well, you know, if you hadn't read that entire clause, I would have pointed to, to it, because what most people remember Harlan for, of course, was the, uh, the line about uh, the Constitution is colorblind, our Constitution is colorblind, and doesn't draw distinctions. Uh, that's a powerful statement, and Harlan was certainly progressive or relatively progressive. He was ahead of his time in many respects, uh, at least for justices on the Supreme Court he was. I say that because uh, I don't want to let uh, uh, everybody in that age off the hook. There were people who advocated for equality um, and who saw uh, discrimination as being abhorrent uh, across the board. Uh, but uh, that language reflected his own belief, as progressive as he was, relatively speaking, in uh, social inequality, even while he was advocating for formal inequality. Uh, I read him or I read him uh, to say, look, uh, we, um, we white people, uh, we need to treat uh, these black folk uh, exactly the same as uh, we would, would expect to be treated under the law. Uh, that's not a threat to you because, or to us because um, we are the superior race. It's not that he didn't believe in racial superiority. He clearly did. I don't see any other way of reading that, that passage. Yet he said that the Constitution itself should not be sullied by being applied in uh, a way that was racially discriminatory. Uh, progressive, relatively speaking, uh, whether he really believed in colorblindness as, a, uh, as a, uh, uh, an absolute matter, I, mean, I think clearly he didn't. Um, so uh, that's Harlan. Um, you know, ironically, uh, I knew a judge at one time who sat here in Philadelphia, the late Leon Higginbotham, A. Leon Higginbotham, who liked to point out that uh, Harlan was the only member of that court 
who didn't attend an Ivy League school. <laughs> you know, he, uh, he came from Kentucky, and uh, yet he was the only one who found his way uh, to saying that the Constitution was colorblind, whatever he believed about uh, social inequality. He, Justice Harlan did teach night classes at GW Law School, which I do as well. It's a very honorable tradition. And he objected when the school cut his salary. So I have total sympathy <laughs> for that for that as well. I would too. Yeah, absolutely. It was an outrage. So, Michael, Ted has said, parsing Harlan, he did not believe in colorblindness across the board. He clearly thought that social inequality was okay. And other scholars, even conservative scholars like John Harrison and Michael McConnell have reinforced that point, suggesting that Harlan insisted on equality with respect to civil rights, but not political or social rights, and that that distinction tracked something embraced by all of the Reconstruction framers. Uh, do you agree with that narrowing of the colorblindness principle? I, I, yes, absolutely. Um, and I think that that's an important emphasis. And one of the things I think people listening to this podcast ought to think about is, well, if the 14th Amendment really just created a colorblind society, why did we need the 15th Amendment? Um, and the answer was uh, implicit in your question, I think, uh, because the 14th Amendment, as Justice Harlan thought, and I think as many people thought, and as you're suggesting, um, many scholars today uh, believe is historically accurate, was intended to deal primarily with civil rights and not really address political rights. And we needed another amendment in order to ensure equality amongst citizens, regardless of race, in political rights like voting. That's right. The framers of the 14th Amendment uh, if you read the legislative history of the 14th Amendment, they made it very clear that they did not see voting political rights um, as a civil right. Uh, so uh, Michael is right. That's why we needed a 15th Amendment. Excellent. And we know that we're all agreed that the 14th Amendment didn't cover political rights because it says in Section 2, when the right to vote in any election for the choice of electors for president and vice president and so forth uh, is abridged, except for participation in rebellion and crimes, the basis of reputation shall be reduced in proportion which the number of such male citizens shall bear to the whole number of male citizens 21 years of age in such state. They were contemplating that if the southern states did deny the right to vote, which you could do under the 14th Amendment, there'd be a corresponding diminution in apportionment. Okay, so forth. This right, is and, and that language, of course, also um, uh, reflects the fact that women... Uh, were not uh, <laughs> covered by what would be the 15th Amendment, uh, but certainly not by the 14th Amendment with respect to that representation clause. They did, and, and women's rights advocates objected to the interjection of the word male in the Constitution for the first time, which was the word of caste. Okay, Michael, but now let's delve in. If it's right that the 14th Amendment was not meant to cover political rights, um, and the 15th Amendment, as Justice Harlan II said in his dissenting opinions in cases like Baker and Carr, wasn't meant to cover apportionment and questions involving voting arrangements. Um, sorry, the 14th Amendment wasn't meant to, to cover that, and the 15th Amendment wasn't uh, meant to extend to govern all voting arrangements. Then are cases like Shelby County inconsistent with the original understanding of the 14th and 15th Amendment? Shelby County, though, has to do with whether or not Congress has positive power to um, uh, to override state rules about states. So I'm not I'm not sure I see the contradiction. Maybe you could. 
explain that? Well, let me let me ask a, a maybe a, a sharper case. Uh, cases the the line of cases involving Shavi Reno that said that race consciousness in the drawing of voting districts violate the Constitution's colorblind provision. Are those inconsistent with the original understanding of the 14th and 15th Amendment? Uh, that's a real hard question. I, I, I don't think they are, simply because there comes... I mean, it, it, it's like... Um, and now, um, unfortunately, the, the name of the case is floated straight from my brain, but um, the case involving um, laundromats that were... laundries, I should say, that were... primarily. Uh, thank you. Um, and... <laughs> There's always been a you know real purpose understanding of how the Constitution should be interpreted. If a law is simply on its face neutral, but its real purpose is to distinguish among citizens on the basis of race, then the court will look at the reality and not the mere words of the statute or laws that's at issue. Cases like Shaw versus Reno, the question is were. Um, the lines being drawn to push people of a given race into one district rather than another. And was that really the primary motivation for the drawing of the line? You can see how, for example, if you had a town uh, that was, you know, of mixed race and the, the Board of Education of the town drew a line to ensure that the school, you know, they didn't say white children go here and black children go here, but they drew a line that would more or less do that. You could understand how that would be, in, you know, perfectly consistent. It would be perfectly consistent with the Constitution to declare that uh, to be a violation of the Fourteenth Amendment. Uh, thanks for that, Ted. Do you think cases like Chavez Reno are inconsistent with the original understanding of the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendments? Well, as framed, that's it's an interesting question. Uh, if the Fourteenth Amendment um, was not intended to address uh, political matters, uh, you know, the right to vote, then arguably that's right, although, uh, frankly, that's not the argument that uh, those who uh, supported the redistricting plan that was attacked in Shaw v. Reno made. Uh, by uh, that time, and certainly by this time, we're well beyond the notion that governmental action uh, pursuant to the uh, uh, 14th Amendment, so by the 14th Amendment's lights that are, that's race conscious, um, gets subjected to strict scrutiny. Uh, and I assume that we're going to come uh, to talk about strict scrutiny. Um, my problem with Shaw v. Reno uh, really stemmed from uh, the analysis which uh, compared drawing a district that ended up being 53% uh, black, 47% white in a jurisdiction or a state with a long history of racial discrimination against black voters, uh, and the district is drawn pursuant to the Voting Rights Act, compared that with political apartheid and uh, failed to draw a distinction between uh, its context. So it was totally uh, decontextualized and uh, ahistorical, but um, that's our grapes. That's what uh, Justice O'Connor did, and uh, it's it set a law. Good. Well, it sounds like we're all in agreement that the Fourteenth Amendment was originally understood to cover civil rights, but not political rights, and that it's been extended to cover political rights in ways that 
may make it hard to recover that original understanding. Michael, now let's talk about affirmative action. Is the question for an, for, for an originalist whether the right to go to public schools is or is not a civil right? And was not that question contested? Uh, Michael McConnell has a famous article about how people stood up in Congress saying the right to go to school isn't a civil right. So don't worry, this amendment isn't going to mean that uh, you have to have desegregated schools. But he says by a little bit later, by 1875, the right to go to school was considered a civil right. Is that the nub of the, the question? Is the right to go to school a civil right? I don't think it's the nub of the question for affirmative action. That certainly is. If you're an originalist, that might be a, an interesting question for you to have. It's um, you know, sort of a settled uh, law at this point in time that, that it is considered to be a civil right. And that, well, it's pretty much um, hard to identify anything the government does that's not covered by the 14th Amendment, even, even though we've, we've had this discussion up until this point that it was intended to... Um, it was intended to apply to, to civil rights rather than political rights. I understand that uh, that's the way it's been interpreted, but I want to, because this is productive to have this conversation between the two of you, how should an originalist analyze the question of whether or not affirmative action is okay? An originalist that's the Constitution? Yes. Is that what you're, that's what you're asking? Yeah the, should, well, yeah, the original understanding of the 14th Amendment, should it be... Uh, extended to allow or, or ban affirmative action? Yeah, I mean, uh, th well, um, let me let me, uh, let me me make sure I understand your question. Is, is the question whether or not schools are subject to the 14th Amendment at all? Uh, would, in, would, would the people who voted for and ratify the 14th Amendment have extended it to include schools? Well, I think not. I think not. I mean, I think it was fair. I mean, the historical record... I think is relatively clear because they had segregated schools in Washington, D.C. from that point until the 1950s. So if the, assuming for the sake of argument they were being consistent, then I think they would, they would have understood it not to include it. And one more, th thanks for following this down the path. Is Brown versus Board of Education inconsistent with the original understanding of the 14th Amendment? Well, I know people have debated that back and forth, and uh, uh, if if I, I guess if it's the case that um, that it was intended to exclude civil rights, it would be. But I I think by the time Brown came along, there was there was little debate that education was considered part of the civil rights that the Fourteenth Amendment protected. I mean, uh, before Brown came along, Sweat versus Painter had been decided, and that didn't even involve. Uh, elementary education that involved law schools. So, um, you know, perhaps, but it's a, it's, a, it's a question that was... I don't think it was a question that could have been relitigated at the point of Brown. Wonderful. So, Ted, Michael is basically saying whether or not the right to go to schools were considered a civil right when the 14th Amendment was framed, they were by 1954. And Chief Justice Warren, I suppose, made a similar argument in Brown itself. Are you convinced by that argument, and do you think it's a convincing argument for an originalist to make? Well, I'm not going to be um, uh, presumptuous and uh, and frame the arguments for originalists. I'm not an originalist, but uh, uh, I, I would say that uh, uh, I'd emphasize that in Brown, the question of what the framers of the 14th Amendment intended with respect to public schools 
was not settled prior to the Supreme Court's decision. Uh, in fact, uh, that was sent back, or rather I should say that the, the parties were sent back to research that issue and to re-argue Brown uh, in between the 1952-53 term and the 53-54 term. Uh, now, one might say that what the court was really doing was buying time. Uh, and I think there's some truth to that, but uh, the, uh, the answer that came back, or the answers that came back, was inconclusive. Uh, I think you can go and look at the legislative history of the 14th Amendment, and you can make arguments. I mean, Michael's right that there were public schools that were segregated in Washington, D.C. Uh, from my standpoint, the interesting uh, thing about that uh, is that the framers of the 14th Amendment took all kinds of actions that were race-conscious, uh, including the creation of schools for the newly freed or the children of the newly freed slaves uh, and the creation of hospitals, uh, you know, the uh, Freedmen's Bureau, all kinds of race-conscious measures. Um, and uh, it's been difficult for me to understand uh, how people... Uh, rush to the conclusion that race consciousness itself, mere race consciousness, is inconsistent with uh, the intent of the framers of the 14th Amendment. Uh, that's what's important when we get to the discussion or the uh, argument about affirmative action. Great. Michael, so what's the response? Ted says the f Congress that passed the 14th Amendment passed other race-conscious measures, including the Freedmen's Bureau laws that made special benefits available to the freedmen. I guess others have argued on the other side that they also included refugees who were not all African-American. Is that the response that, uh, to Ted's point? Or what, what is your response to his claim that the original 14th Amendment Congress was itself race conscious? They were race conscious, but they didn't think the 14th Amendment applied to them. They thought it applied to the states. And they didn't aware, they weren't aware, at least not in the, in the 1860s and 1870s, that the Fifth Amendment had any kind of uh, race neutrality clause to it that was um, sort of discovered by the Supreme Court in the 1950s. Ted, what's the response to that? Well, I, I don't think, um, you know, it's hard for me to imagine that uh, the Congress, that in, the 39th Congress, the Congress that enacted the uh, 14th Amendment, thought that it was able to do things that... Um, the states couldn't do with respect to the question. I mean, it could, obviously, it could do things that the state didn't do. That Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, it had authority to do that. Uh, but at the same time, uh, with respect to the question of whether uh, an action was racially discriminatory, that's what I'm getting at. I don't think that uh, the 39th Congress would have thought that uh, the state's actions um, were judged under a different standard with respect to asking whether or not ultimately what they were doing was racial discrimination. That's the point I'm making. One more beat on this, Michael. You think the states and feds were, were judged by a different standard? I think the people who were in the Congress at that time did, would have, yeah. I mean, don't forget, they just went through a civil war and there was tremendous, I mean, the whole point of the 14th Amendment was to limit uh, the state's ability to 
um, do certain things that had resulted, after all, in the Civil War. So, yeah, I, I, I actually think the Congress that passed the 14th Amendment would have given themselves a lot more latitude than they would give the state. Yeah, I, I guess what I'm framing, because I understand the arguments that, that you're making, Michael, and uh, I get that and even agree with it as far as it, well, up to a point. Uh, where I don't go uh, is to uh, agree with the notion that um, that Congress, the 39th Congress, which was trying to do all kinds of things to bring into uh, the fullness of uh, protection under the law, uh, would not have would have been unhappy with the states uh, taking actions that, for example, set up schools for the recently freed slaves, or uh, dealt with land issues, uh, you know, for the recently freed slaves. I just don't see that. Um, as being supported by the legislative history. Good. Okay, this is very subtle discussion. Michael, I now want to ask, if, if we've all agreed that the framers of the 14th Amendment embraced a limited conception of colorblindness that only applied to civil rights but not political and social rights, what is the source for the claim made by Justices Thomas and Scalia and others that the Constitution is colorblind in all circumstances? Um, you know, you'd have to ask Justices Thomas and Scalia about that. I don't. I don't ask them about their sources. I mean, certainly, the one method of interpreting the Constitution is to interpret it on the level of generality that the that the framers uh, intended when they when they passed it in the first instance. And in this instance, you know, the the people that ratified it. Um, and so I suspect that if Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia were here to discuss this with you, um, they would say that regardless of any specific kind of laws that may have been passed at the time, the general principle, the purpose of the 14th Amendment was to establish a general principle of colorblindness, and it, and it was to be interpreted at that level of generality, and a good originalist should interpret it according to the level of generality that the, that the framers intended even if they were being somewhat either inconsistent or hypocritical, depending upon your point of view. Thank you for trying to channel uh, them in that way, Ted. Uh, yeah, it wasn't easy. <laughs> well, it was, <laughs> it was well done. It never is. The, the Constitution Thank is you. not for the faint-hearted. Um, Ted, do you, are Justice Scalia and Thomas correct to assert that the Constitution is colorblind in all circumstances? Well, no, I don't think they are correct. Um, and um, I don't think that there's ever been five votes for the proposition that the uh, Constitution requires absolute colorblindness. If that were uh, not true, if there were five votes for that proposition, we wouldn't have uh, the notion of strict scrutiny, uh, which is aimed at uh, uh, accepting a fortiori the fact that there's uh, uh, that certain race-conscious measures uh, may be undertaken by governmental actors. Uh, but uh, where they're taken, they're subjected to the highest form of scrutiny. They're presumptively unconstitutional unless we uh, come up with a uh, compelling uh, justification for it. Uh, so uh, that, whole, uh, that whole analysis would collapse if uh, there were five votes for the notion that all, uh, all race-conscious measures taken by uh, governmental actors are unconstitutional. Michael, do you think that all race-conscious measures taken by government are unconstitutional, or do you have a different view? No, I, I don't. And I, to be, 
I don't, I don't know that there's one vote on the Supreme Court for the proposition that that government can never take race into account. Uh, Justice Scalia, in his Croson dissent, indicated that compelling governmental interest might be some kind of an emergency uh, involving violence, and that would permit a narrowly tailored um, a narrowly tailored solution to a racial na- narrowly tailored solution to the problem. Uh, if I'm correct, I believe Justice Thomas uh, dissented in Johnson, the the California prison case, which I think he concluded that strict scrutiny wasn't necessarily applicable to that situation. So I don't I don't know that there's any um, any justice, and I, and I certainly don't think that there's uh, that the constitution constitution precludes every and all forms of uh, race consciousness. Good. Well, let us. Um, we're having uh, this is such a great discussion that uh, we, we've we've gone deep in. But let's end with the Fisher case. We'll be talking a lot about it this year, uh, involving a challenge to the University of Texas's affirmative action program. And Ted, just to go back to the original understanding for a moment, if I can, there, there's a debate about the framers' desire to end caste affirming legislation. C a c a s t e for our listeners. And liberals say that only laws that are caste-affirming violate the 14th Amendment and affirmative action isn't because it helps African-Americans rather than hurting them. Conservatives like Justice Thomas say affirmative action is caste-affirming because it stigmatizes African-Americans and makes them seem like they need special help. How should we think about that debate in regard to Fisher? Well, um, Justice Thomas's concern about stigmatizing effects about uh, of affirmative action uh, you know I think that's um, uh, a conversation that has a place um, but I uh, I think that uh, the uh, the opposition to uh, affirmative action or diversity efforts uh, and those are really I wish we had time to talk about the difference between those two terms and and you know, where those differences originate and what the significance of those differences are. Uh, But uh, uh, what troubles me is the notion that uh, what the University of Texas is doing is uh, racially discriminatory against white applicants uh, in the same way that uh, there was racial discrimination against uh, Heman Sweat back in the 1950s when he applied to UT Law School. Uh, or in the late 1940s, uh, all they did was look at him and said he was black, and that was that. You know, he was excluded. Uh, Abigail Fisher didn't face that kind of discrimination, and the intention wasn't to exclude uh, white students from the University of Texas. One of the the factual uh, uh, matters in uh, in Fisher that often gets lost is that there were significant numbers of black and uh, Latino students with higher Texas index scores uh, than Abigail Fisher, who were rejected. Um, So whatever the reason, she may have been affected by race indirectly, just like she would uh, by any other factor taken into account by the university and admissions. Uh, And that's, you know, that's, uh, they're allowed to do that under Bakke and uh, then Gruder. Uh, but she wasn't excluded because of her race. You know, that's not, and so that's what troubles me uh, in terms of the analysis and the uh, 
the way that uh, uh, you know, what she experienced is alleged to have been symmetrical to the experience of invidious discrimination visited upon African-Americans based upon the notions of uh, inferiority and superiority, those notions aren't in play uh, for Abigail Fisher. Good. Well, I think we should try to persuade you both to come back for a full discussion on Fisher. But, Michael, what is your uh, what are your thoughts about the constitutional issues raised by Fisher? How should we think about it? And is it relevant whether or not affirmative action is cast affirming? Um, well, let me um, let me start by agreeing with Ted that I certainly I, I don't think anyone makes a direct correlation or comparison between a case like Fisher and a case like Sweat. I mean, there's consideration of race in both cases, but obviously it was used in one in a much more invidious fashion. Um, that being said, the fact that it's not as invidious doesn't mean it should be permitted or that it's constitutional. Some, you know, there are some really bad things that are unconstitutional, things which are maybe uh, not as bad but are still unconstitutional. Does it matter whether it's cast? No, I, I, don't, I don't think so. Because I think it's, well, let me put it this way. Um, one of the purposes of strict scrutiny is to sort of determine what the purpose of, um, of the underlying provision is and to determine whether or not um, the state used the best methods in order to obtain that purpose. I think that it's very, sometimes very, very difficult to make the determination of what the real purpose is. Uh, you can think of laws, uh, think of laws for, I'm, I'm going to use a different context of sex discrimination, laws that were designed to, quote, protect, unquote, women by precluding them from working too many hours or, for example, precluding them from becoming attorneys, uh, things like that. Well, was that past affirming? Would that be showing that uh, the people who passed the laws had a derogatory and negative perspective on women, or is it just discriminatory treatment that shouldn't be permitted? So I'm not sure that the, the caste approach is necessarily the best way to go about analyzing these issues. Good. Well, we will revisit Fisher, and if we're lucky, we'll have uh, both of you, because this has been an extraordinarily thoughtful discussion so it's time, gentlemen, for closing arguments. I'm going to ask the question with which we began, and what is your, uh, your final thoughts, uh, Ted, about uh, whether or not the Constitution is colorblind? Well, I, I, the Constitution is not colorblind, uh, and uh, there have never been five votes for that proposition. Uh, I think that the notion of colorblindness was... Uh, was picked up by civil rights advocates in the early 20th century. Um, if they were uh, bent on overruling Plessy versus Ferguson, which was the, uh, the case that affirmed Jim Crow segregation, uh, then the antidote uh, appeared to be in the, uh, the Harlan dissent, colorblindness. It was very attractive. But I don't think that they meant then that uh, race... Uh, could never be considered, even as race continues to be uh, a cause of racial inequality, as uh, has been said. Sometimes to get beyond race, you have to consider race. Um, we all, I think, someday would like to come to the point 
where we no longer have to have the government uh, considering race. But uh, I often say that even as we sit today, uh, if we go back to uh, the arrival of African Americans in 1619 at Jamestown, right now, eight out of every 10 days of uh, black people in what's now the United States have been spending either slavery or Jim Crow segregation, and we have all this massive inequality of opportunity and uh, we've only begun to address it a very short while ago. Uh, so it's too early to talk about uh, colorblindness. The question to me isn't whether um, we see race. The question is, what is its significance? Do we exclude people? Do we discriminate against them? Or do we, um, do we open up opportunity for all? Thank you for that, Ted. Michael, last word to you. Is the Constitution colorblind? Um, well, no, but the, uh, the answer is technically it might be, because if you remember what Ted said at the outset, it doesn't actually refer to race uh, in its terms. Um, we all know that there were some provisions that were intended to be applied only to people of particular races. Uh, but on its face, it doesn't refer to one race or the other. Uh, the question when people say, is the Constitution colorblind, that I think they're trying to get at it, does it require colorblind laws? Um, and I think the answer to that question is no. I don't think there are many people who think that the government can never take race into account. The difference, most people, the difference between people on one side of issues like affirmative action and the other is how strict should strict scrutiny, what are the circumstances under which laws uh, should be permitted to take race into account, or government action uh, aside and apart from laws. I think the, you know, the general answer I like to come up with is very, very rarely and under unusual circumstances. Thank you so much, uh, Michael Rossman and Ted Shaw, for really an unusually thoughtful and illuminating discussion. Uh, this is one of the most hotly contested constitutional issues of our day, and I am grateful to you both for addressing it with such nuance and illumination. We will continue to discuss the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment for the next four years as they continue to turn 150, and this has been a, a great inauguration to a series that we're calling our commemoration of the second founding. Today's show was engineered and edited by Jason Gregory. It was produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Joshua Weinberg and Daniele Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash constitutionctr, and on our Twitter feed, at constitutionctr. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. Just search for us in the iTunes store. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, a new podcast featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center across from Independence Hall in Philadelphia. Our next up will be a phenomenal conversation we're about to have in just a few minutes with Police Commissioner Charles Ramsey, who started a really exciting program to teach school kids and police recruits about the Constitution here at the center. And it will be joined by our own Ted Shaw, who will share his reflections, along with those of other scholars, about policing in America. We the People is a member of the Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And finally, ladies and gentlemen, my good friends, despite our congressional charter, 
The National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who love constitutional debates like this one and who are inspired by our great nonpartisan mission of constitutional education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. And please join us again next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.